Well, I would also like to extend my uh, invitation and welcome. My name is Josh Wall. I'm also one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth, and we're excited that you're with us this morning. If you are a regular member, if you've been around forever, or if you are new or consider yourself somewhat new, or wherever you are, we are excited that you're with us this morning. Um, we, we are working through a series this summer that we're called Knowing God by Name. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the names of God that show up in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and we're looking at the names that reference God in order that we may know God from them. Not just know about God, right? Not learn a structure or a form, but that we may know God in an intimate, personal, connected kind of way. And so that's what we're attempting to do as we work through these. Uh, the name for this morning is Jehovah Saba, T-S-A-B-A. Um, and that means uh, our Lord, the warrior or mighty warrior. And we're going to unpack what that means for us. But first, I want you to hear these words of scripture uh, for this morning. This comes from 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defiled. This is the day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What does it mean for God to be for us? What does it mean for God to be for you? If you were to actually think about it, and so I'm going to talk a bit because I want you to think about it. If you were to describe or write down an action or an adjective of what it would mean for God to be for you, what would you put down? We're working through this series, right? Talking about the names of God and what it means and what it implies and tells us. And in one of the things that it shows us, especially in this section, is we have the beginning of the story of David. And really this is the story of David and Goliath. And we'll unpack that a bit more in a minute. But it's talking about what it means for God to be for someone and what it meant for God to be for David. And I think as we get to the end, we'll see what it means for God to be for us. But first, let's start uh, with David and Goliath, set up and unpack a little bit of what's going on. It can be tricky, I'll just be honest. It can be tricky when you sit in my role sometimes and you get to preach on a story that can be so well-known because we all go, yeah, 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 I've got this, I've got this, I've heard it. But there's, there's certainly some interesting things to be learned, right? The story of David and Goliath uh, is really just the beginning of David's arc of, of being engaged, right? It's the first big thing that happens with him throughout the scriptures, it doesn't actually start with David. It actually starts with a prophet named Samuel. Samuel was a prophet that was called by God, and Samuel would go out and basically do uh, these riding circuits throughout the region. So he would go one or two times a year, and he'd go and do a tour through the land of Israel, and he would answer questions, and he would judge, and he would say what God needed him to say. And in the midst of that, one time, he senses this call that he's supposed to go and anoint a king. See, Samuel had anointed the first king, who was Saul, but that wasn't working out so hot, right? It started okay, and then it took a quick downturn pretty quickly on. And so 
God tells Samuel, there's a new person you're supposed to go call. There's a new person you're supposed to anoint. Um, so, and it's a son of Jesse. So Samuel finds Jesse. He goes out there. Many of us have heard this story. But he finds Jesse. He says, I need to see your son. Some are off to war. He can't find. It's the littlest one. It's the one who's out guarding the sheep. Uh, and guarding the sheep, by the way, being a shepherd was not a prestigious job back in the day. It was something that was often done by like a 10, 11, or 12-year-old. It was not a big fancy job. You smelled of sheep when you came back. You were really bored most of the time that you're out because I don't know if you've ever spent much time with sheep. And, and maybe there's deep sheep lovers here. But in my opinion, they are not the most interesting animals ever. They are not a dog that follows you around and has character. Sheep just kind of stare at you and then they go eat some grass, right? So if you're a shepherd, your job is to watch an animal, stare at you awkwardly for a bit, and then go eat some grass, and then you lead it off somewhere else, wear it again, stares at you, and then goes and eats some grass. This is not a complicated job. This is not a hard job, but this is David's job. So uh, David at this time, we're not exactly sure how old, but he's probably middle teenage years-ish, right? He's somewhere in that like not really a boy, but maybe he's a man. And what does that mean? So he's probably 15, 16, maybe 14, maybe 17, somewhere in there doing a job that involves a lot of sheep staring at him and then going and eating some grass. So Samuel comes up and says to David, anoints David, uh, and then they decide to go take some food to the front lines where he has brothers who are serving. So they go and they do that. Uh, they meet this Philistine who is Goliath. Goliath is this ginormous uh, giant of a man. His armor, Goliath's armor, weighs 130 pounds, which is probably about as much as David weighs at this stage. Uh, when I was 15, I was this height and 124 pounds. I wrestled in that weight class as a freshman. Like, that is not a lot of guy. And he sees this monster of a man who's just insulting and belittling the people of Israel, the people of God, God himself. And, and he gets frustrated and he gets mad. And so he turns to Saul and he says, what are you doing? We can't do this. I'll go fight him. And Saul kind of at his wit's end basically goes like, sure, sure, whatever, whatever, just make it happen. And then the rest of the story we kind of, we kind of know often. David goes and he gets some smooth stones. And then that leads, and then he goes out onto the field, right? And the Philistine, who's, this is, again, Goliath, this man standing over seven foot tall, 130 pounds of armor with a massive sword, a massive spear. He has a shield bearer to carry his extra stuff because his stuff's so heavy. And he looks down and he begins to taunt him. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. You're done. This is easy. I got this. And David responds in the way that we heard, right? This is the day that the Lord will hand you over to me. They run at each other. David takes a sling, so a piece of leather normally with a little pocket and he has a rock in there. Normally used to scare off birds or sometimes hunting or scare off wild animals. Throws it right, hits Goliath in the head. Down he goes. Game over, things done, Philistines run away, Israelites just after them. This story is really a story about a couple of things. First of all, it's a story, uh, it, it's setting up clear contrasts, right? So on the one hand, we have David, who is young, who is fairly pure, who has good intentions, who is passionate and believes in God and is a deep devoted follower of this. And on the contrast of that is Goliath, this massive seasoned veteran of a warrior, right? And 
Goliath taunts and he belittles. And Goliath is coming, this is important too, Goliath is coming to steal and destroy and loot and plunder. But Goliath is bringing desolation in his wake. That's the point of Goliath. And David is coming to preserve and defend. This story is ultimately, at the end of the day, and this sounds, can sound almost trivial to say sometimes, right? Or it can be almost not eye-roll-inducing, but it sounds simplistic. This story at its core is one that's fundamentally just about God's power. It's about the fact that God can use anyone he wants in any way that he wants. And that's the reason why David is small and little. That's the reason why David uh, is, is not prestigious. David is not a mighty warrior. He will become one. But right now, David is the least of all the people. He is the leftover of the brothers. And even while he will become the anointed king of Israel, and he is anointed and will become the king, at this stage, he's a nobody. And it can be sometimes trivial or dismissive just to think, well, we know what it's about. But that doesn't make it any less true. The story is setting up contrast and it's a story about God's faithfulness and God's power in the midst of situations. And the story is also about God as the Lord of hosts is what it is. As God, as Jehovah Saba. And what this, this, this is actually an interesting word. Uh, the, word the word Saba, it doesn't translate well into English. So I'll say that at some stage in school or in, in seminary, like if you, if you become a pastor type person, they make you take Greek and Hebrew. Some of us really liked it. Most of us did not. Um, and some of us do better at different languages. My Greek was pretty good and still is pretty good. My Hebrew was a rough start from the very first day I took it to the very first day I was done and said, I never have to touch this again. Amen. Hallelujah. Walk away. Leave the book. I'm never going back. But it's been really interesting to work through the series, right? Because we're talking about the names of God and what does that mean and what does that say and what does that say about who God is? And the word Saba, so Jehovah means Lord, right? The word Saba is tricky to translate. It means hosts, but we don't really know what to do with that. It means armies sometimes, but there's another word that says army. Um, it sometimes means warrior or mighty warrior. So what, what's going on in here? As we roll through it, it actually shows up 200 different times this word shows up. And if you look at different translations, the translations aren't necessarily deeply connected where you go, oh, we just swapped this word out for that word. So what happens when we're talking about the Lord of hosts is really that, that a host back in the day was really a sign uh, of might and power, right? That's what a host was. A host was often an army, but not always. And when they talk about Jehovah Saba, like the God of hosts, there's almost a divine element that comes with it. I was talking with a friend about this sermon and they said, what's it about? And I was explaining and I said the name and they're like, does that mean like God of angels? And I said, well, kind of like angels we often think of as choir and robes and everything else, but angels are also a representation of divine power. And so when God is the God of heavenly hosts, it's the God of divine heavenly power. And so, so sometimes throughout the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, God is referenced and the armies and people of God are referenced as, as he is the Lord of hosts of them. And sometimes they're not. The Lord of hosts at the end of the day is a visible sign of an invisible reality, right? It's a representation. It's a demarcation. It's a declaration that God is powerful and authoritative. 
in the midst of a chaotic and tumultuous world. The Lord of hosts is not necessarily, and is not about violence, but it's about protecting and preserving. And specifically, it's about protecting and preserving shalom. Shalom is another Hebrew word, one of the few I still remember. Shalom uh, is the Hebrew word that means peace, right? But it doesn't just mean peace as in like everything is neutral and still. It means peace in a whole sense. It means peace in the, this is the way the world is supposed to be kind of understanding of peace. We as Christians have a hard time often and historically have had a hard time when we talk about this, when we talk about God as warrior or God of peace and what that means. And I think we do that for a couple of reasons. As, as Christianity over the history of Christianity became part of the national religion and got adopted by the Roman Empire and then got ingrained into parts of Europe, there was a lot of things that were done on the empire side that then were attributed because of Christian reasons. We don't have to look very far in our history, and there's lots of examples, but you can look at things like the Crusades where we went and invaded countries in the name of Jesus because we had a warrior God and we needed to fight and defend what was ours. But that doesn't feel quite right to me. That doesn't feel like when God is the warrior, when God is fighting, that is not protecting and preserving shalom. Right, so sometimes we over-respond and it becomes almost a nationalistic interaction. On the other times, on personal levels, we often take almost a laissez-faire kind of approach. We're passive. We say, well, God will, what God will do, and it will be what it will be, and God will take care of it, and we kind of just go back and wash our hands and sit and wait. I'll tell you, as a, as a pastor and as a person, I've seen this play out a bunch of times. I've seen people stay and hurtful and harmful relationships where, where someone was abusive and they, they just, they didn't feel like they could leave or they didn't feel like they were empowered to leave or they felt like God wanted them to stay. They felt like, well, this is, God will just suddenly make everything better. And God may, but often God works through us and with us. The, the notion that God is the Lord of hosts, for me comes down to this, that there is such a thing as a righteous anger. There is a thing that God looks at the world and it breaks his heart and he is frustrated and he engages in a fight. God is not passive to the evil around us. God does not endorse the violence in the world. But God is engaged in the fights that are in front of us. The question for us, the question for you and me, I think, is often, what fights are before you? God does not call you to sit on the sidelines. Faith is not something where you have a moment with Jesus and suddenly everything is transformed and then you just get to tag out of the world. What it means to be a believer, what it means to be a disciple is that there are fights often around shalom that we're called to engage in, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Not that we are aggressive and not that we are destructive, 
But there are times when the world cries out, this is not how it's supposed to be. When God cries out, this is not how it's supposed to be. And that is the work that we're called to engage in, to share the good news and to bring freedom to the oppressed. This shows up throughout scripture, right? It shows up all the time. I like the, the things that we read from, from, well, that we sang earlier today, right? A mighty fortress in our God in Psalm 46. Um, can, can, can we just pull those slides up? I'm gonna go out of order for a minute. So Psalm 46 says it this way. It says, uh, the NIV translated the Lord Almighty, but the word there is Saba, the word is hosts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts one day will come destroy the weapons of war and violence because they won't be necessary anymore. Because there won't be a need for them. And we will reign and live in a world of peace and shalom. In Isaiah chapter 2, it puts it this way. Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the temple of Uh, of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, the God that is before us, that is for you, is the one who calls us to action and is the one who stands on the side of the oppressed and the downtrodden and calls us to do the same. The God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, is the one who stands on the side of refugees, of the outcasts, of the lonely, of the 13-year-old kid who is afraid to go to lunch because he's afraid he's going to get picked on and bullied, of the eighth grade kid who skipped recess during lunch because there was a kid who hunted me down and bullied. Not to say that God is with me, but God is on the side of the oppressed, of the wounded, of the hurting, and calls us as people of God to do the same. Not with guilt, not with obligation, not with you should, but as an invitation. What fights are before you and what do you need to engage in? My friends, at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that there are some fights that are just worth having. Not aggressively, not vindictively, not mean-spiritedly, but there are some fights that are worth having. But if we're doing that, if we're living into the call that we have before us, I think there's two things that resonate pretty hard for me and come to mind. Uh, The first is that anytime we're engaged in this, anytime we're engaged in meaningful work, and anytime that tempers flare and emotions flare, we need to keep in mind that there is an enemy and that it's no one in the room. There's often a temptation if you've ever been in one of those, if you've ever been in a time when you're in an argument and you feel and you can feel it well up, and I feel like the hairs on the back of my neck go, and I feel like fight or flight kicks in, right? And I'm just, all right, we're gonna go, and I'm right. And I may be right, but 
there's only one enemy and it's not the other person in the room. When we engage in the fight that we're called to, when we engage in any kind of fight, there's one enemy and it's the devil and it's not any person. The other thing I think is that often we have this tendency that we're going to ramp up to some degree, or maybe this is just me, but I know it's true enough that there's the sense that we're going to ramp up and take over. We'll do what we need to in the name of Jesus. We'll do what we need to because our cause is the right one, because this is what we're supposed to do. And at the same time, the ends do not justify the means. Because we've been down this path over the years, and that ends up at a place of destruction and waste and desolation. We need to treat things appropriately. And the call that sometimes exists of violence is never the right one. There's a quote from Dr. King that I love that says, nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. It is a sword that heals. The call for us as we engage in the fights that we need to is to do it with that. Not a sword of destruction, not a sword that leaves bodies in the wake, but a sword that restores as Dr. King fought for rights of people of all race and color to say we all have right to stand. He understood that there's only one enemy and it's nobody in the room. I don't know where you are. I don't know what fights are before you. I don't know what challenges lay in front of you. But I do know this, that when we follow God, as best we can, not that we do it perfectly by any stretch. But when we we say the words, God who rends the mountain, come wrestle me and win, and we surrender, that God is with us and for us in the struggles that we have, in the opportunities that we have, in the fights that are before us. And God is the Lord of hosts who stands with power and might and the struggles that you have this day and this week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we understand you as the Lord of hosts, as the God who fights for us and calls us to the fight, not willy-nilly, not violently, but helps us to realize that there is a struggle, a cosmic struggle before us in our hearts, in our families, in our society, and in our world. And as we try to live out to be the people that you're calling us to, as we try to be disciples and follow you in the best way we can, God, may you as the Lord of hosts, as the almighty God, as the powerful God, remind us that you are for us, that you call us to the battle, you call us to engage over issues of justice, over issues of compassion, over issues of grace and mercy and shalom, where all people are respected and where all have enough. God, may we not be complacent May we not rest in privilege and comfort, but call us to the battle before us. Give us grace and mercy this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.